We're going to be finishing the book of Judges tonight, believe it or not, and we're going to look at chapters 20 and 21. And if you recall, the last time we were together, we looked at chapter 19, and it, and it really speaks of a, a really awful time in the life of the Israelites. And, um, and we'll be reviewing some of that before we get into chapter 20 to kind of set the stage uh, for what is coming in chapter 20 and 21. But remember, these chapters, specifically Judges chapter 17 through 20, 21, are really chapters sort of like an appendix, sort of like an addendum to the book of Judges. We, the last judge we looked at was Samson, and uh, these chapters that we're looking at right now are not in chronological order. And so, in fact, there's reason to believe that what we're reading tonight and the events surrounding what we're reading tonight actually took place earlier in the time of the Judges, and we'll talk about that and why that is when we get to it. It's really quite simple, but it really just demonstrates the, the difficult time that the children of Israel were going through and how far they had uh, slunk, in a sense, in their morality, in their rebellion. And that's a real warning for us today because it, it, the, the, the common refrain in this book is, and... Um, is this, let me just read it to you. In, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we live in a country, I fear, that is in a place like that, in moral decline. And, and so this book really is a, a very difficult book, certainly for the children of Israel, but it's a reminder to us that, you know, the wages of sin is always death. It, it always is. And whenever we rebel, whenever we turn against God, there's only, there's only bad things coming our way if we don't repent, if we don't turn from those things. So hopefully we'll learn from uh, what the children of Israel went through because the Bible does say that these things were written for our nurture, for our teaching, for our admonition. They're, they're written so that we can learn something. And really, people haven't changed. The, the, the things that we see in the Bible, as, as good and as ugly as they can be, like certainly like what we're talking about tonight, there's really, human beings haven't changed. We haven't changed because a human being, apart from Christ, is a sinner. And uh, history proves that uh, that life that is in rebellion against God is able, it's possible, to just do all kinds of heinous, horrible things apart from Christ. And even in Christ, folks, we have to watch ourselves because we live in very difficult times. So don't be, don't be discouraged. Although tonight is, is uh, again, these are the dark times in Israel's history. And I'm really looking forward to getting into the book of Ruth next month, or next week, excuse me, not next month. So um, let's back up just really quick. We're going to read through uh, chapter 19, beginning in verse 22, because this is really setting the stage for why this battle between Israel and, uh, and Benjamin is going to happen. And we looked at this last week in detail, painful detail. Let's read it, uh, just starting in verse 22. It says, as they were enjoying themselves, speaking of these... Um, this, this man, this Levite, was going back home, and he and his concubine were uh, going um, from Bethlehem, Judah, back to his home in, in Ephraim. And on his way, he stopped at an inn in the, in the area for the tribe of Benjamin. And the men of that city were very cruel, and we'll just read it. It says, as they were enjoying themselves, this man who took them in, 
Suddenly, certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house. They beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the men who came to your house, that we may know them carnally. And as we looked at last week, this is very strikingly similar to Genesis chapter 19. You can cross-reference there. Both of these passages are really ugly to look at. But at verse 23, it says, But the man, the master of the house, he went out to them, and he said to them, Know, my brethren... I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now and humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. And when her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house, he went out to go his way and there was his concubine fallen on the door of the house and her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up and let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey and the man got up and went to his place. And so now we're seeing the scene Uh, the the horrible thing that had occurred. And uh, let's go into uh, verse 29 now. It says, So when he entered his house, he took a knife, and he laid hold of his concubine. Now remember, she's already dead at this point. He divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And obviously this is going to outrage the other tribes of Israel. And they are going to um, react very... uh, They're going to be very upset about this because nothing like this has ever been done. And as we go through these next two chapters, we're going to see some things that happened that had such an impression on later generations. In fact, things that had happened in this chapter were really reenacted by events that had happened earlier, specifically Genesis 19. And then the time that we're looking at right now, which is toward the beginning of the judges in that time period, Fast forward now about a couple hundred years to the time of Saul, king of, the King Saul of the first of uh, Israel, first king of Israel. We're going to see him do a very similar thing where he's going to, he's going to be coming against uh, very soon after he was coronated king. There was a, uh, the Ammonites began a war against uh, Israel and Saul went out to war and Before he did that, he took an oxen and he cut it up into 12 pieces and he sent it to the different tribes of Israel, basically saying, in effect, if you don't come to our aid, then so will be the same for your oxen. In other words, your oxen will be torn to pieces if you don't get with the program and help us, right? And so where did Saul learn that? Certainly he learned it from here. Because he, he remembers Saul was of the, of the town of Gabeah. Saul of Gabeah. This is, this is the town that he was born in. And he was very much aware of this instance, this part of history. In fact, his own people were the ones. His own ancestors were the ones that came against this man and his concubine. Saul was very much aware of the outrage that it caused and how it inflamed the rest of the nation. And so now he's looking back in time and remembers this, and he's thinking, what better way, perhaps, to get my brethren engaged than I'll just do something similar. I'll cut up an ox, 
send it in 12 pieces to the different tribes, and they'll remember, because <laughs> that, that was a, something they'll never forget. And it was kind of a threat, too, which I don't think was the best thing for him to, do, to have done, but he learned it from somewhere. And there's a lesson in there for all of us. And what is that lesson, in a nutshell, that we should be careful about the things that we say, the things that we do, especially as parents? We need to be very much aware of the things we say, the things we do, the life that we lead, because there are younger people watching. And they very rarely will listen to what you say, but they'll watch what you do. It's, it's sort of like the hypocrisy of a mother or a father saying to their son or daughter, don't smoke, and here they are smoking a cigarette. But I don't want you to smoke. The greatest testimony would be for the father and mother to say, we used to smoke, but we don't, and we encourage you not to because of this, because of this, right? There's a lot more in actions than there are in just words. And so the, the, these things are learned. They learn from their history, and we're going to see that as we go along. But our, our actions, they do have an impact on those coming after us. In verse 30, it says, and, and, and so it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from this day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. And so they're saying, consider it and confer and speak up. So now this man is, is, is um, sending out these pieces to them, and they're going to get enraged. And so it obviously begins a, a war in Israel. And let's look at Judges chapter 20, verse 1. It says, So all the children of Israel, they came out from Dan to Beersheba. Now Dan is in the far north, Beersheba is in the very uh, far south. So basically the whole nation, they come together, as well as from the land of Gilead. The land of Gilead is that land on the east side of the Jordan River, uh, occupied by the tribes uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So they all come together, and they, the congregation, they gather together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. Now, Mizpah is a town in Benjamin, just north, uh, a little bit no, uh, north and a little bit west of Jerusalem, still in the land of, uh, of Benjamin. It's about four miles northwest of Jerusalem. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, they presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword, who drew the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone to Mizpah. So they're, because now Mizpah is in the land of Benjamin, and here the Benjamites are, they're thinking these guys are already in our land, and they've come to take care of business. They're angry. They, they're, they're, these are men of war. So then the children of Israel said to the Levite, they said, tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? And so the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, my concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me, surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. I think that would get attention, wouldn't it? It's never been done before. I mean, can you imagine that? I don't even want to go into it anymore. It's so heinous. And yet in our culture, this stuff doesn't even shock us anymore. There was a time in our country where you could read a passage like this and people would blush, you know. But unfortunately, in, in our culture, there's so much violence that nothing very little shocks us anymore. So 
He said, look, the Levite said to the, this whole 400,000 men, look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. So he's really drawing them to a conclusion. So all the people arose as one man, saying, none of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this is the thing that we will do to Gabeah. We will go up against it by lot, which means they'll cast lots and they'll, a certain amount will go against the city to take it. Now remember, Gabeah is in Benjamin. It is the hometown of Saul who wouldn't be born for yet another couple hundred years from the time that we're looking at. So verse 10, we will take 10 men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand and a thousand out of every 10,000 to make provisions for the people that when they come to Gabeah in Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. So really what they're doing is they're taking 10% of this 400,000 men and really uh, that's 400 or 40,000. So 40,000 people are going to prepare uh, prepare food and, 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 and things that these other 360,000 are going to go to battle against Benjamin, specifically Gibeah. So, verse 11, all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. And then the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribes of Benjamin, saying, what is this wickedness that has occurred among you? So now they, sent, they send the ambassadors into Benjamin, and they're questioning the men of Benjamin. What has happened? What has happened? And they tell them, verse 13, now therefore deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gabeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. And they had every right. Because of the things that they did, the law demanded that they be put to death for the things that they did. But this tribe evidently was very proud. And, you know, you think about it as we, as we go along here, how if they would have just delivered the men up, if they would have just taken the, the handful of men that were responsible for this vile act, it would have spared the lives of so many but that's not really what pride does, does it? Because pride, there's always a big price tag for pride, for holding on to pride and being stubborn and self-willed. There is always a price tag. And we're going to see that price tag, not only for the men of Benjamin, but also for the men of Israel. Thousands and thousands and tens of thousands have died because of this one act of rebellion. They could have ended it. It could have been over in a minute. But instead... There's world war, in a sense, among the tribes. There's a, a, a verse in Proverbs, but we know it all very well. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And Benjamin was in that place. They were very proud. They wouldn't rather give up the men, the perverted men, but instead would go to war. So instead, the children of Benjamin, they gathered together from the cities to Gabeah. So now all the cities of Benjamin, they're going to this specific city in Benjamin to go to battle against the children of Israel. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of this one city of Gabeah who numbered 700 select men. So think about the math here. In, in Benjamin... There are 26,700 men, and then uh, including these 700 men from Gibeah, against 400,000, or more specifically, 360,000. 
the odds are not in Benjamin's favor, are they? So among all those people, verse 16, were 700 select men, notice, who were left-handed. And everyone, every one of them could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. And so being left-handed was very unusual at this time. You remember when we first started in the book of Judges, one of the judges who delivered Israel from Eglon, the king of Moab, was a man by the name of Ehud. And Ehud was a left-handed man. He was from Benjamin, from the tribe of Benjamin. And he always carried his sword or his dagger on his right thigh. So he would reach in and grab it like this and pull it out with his left hand. Now, I just happen to be a left-handed guy, too. So this, this is kind of hits, hits home. There's a story, but I won't go into it. I, I, I almost, I, I should. No, I won't. So... A left-handed guy. Now, the thing is, there's 700 of these guys. And when they go into battle, they're used to men who draw out their right hand. Who they, they know they're very comfortable battling with somebody who's coming at a sword from this vantage point. Does that make sense? But they're not prepared for somebody who has a sword in the other hand. It throws everything off. Unless you know that your, your, your enemy is a southpaw or whatever they call it. What is it, a northpaw, southpaw? Yeah, southpaw. That, that's what, you know, if you don't know you're the guy you're in the ring with and he's a southpaw and you're expecting all these right jabs, it's going to be over in one round. And so they weren't prepared for this. But Ehud was one of those men. He was a Benjamite, a left-handed man, and he, he, he was able to bring uh, a victory for the children of Israel when he slayed uh, Ehud, or I'm sorry, um, Eglon, the king of Moab, and the king never saw it coming because he was, and they didn't even check to look for, look for weapons on him because they were out looking on the right side, looking on his right side, thinking they'd find something. But underneath his coat, he had something on his right side, which is very uncommon. So they didn't even look. So they, he goes in pretty much unnoticed and kills King uh, Eglon and secures the victory for Israel. And so becomes a, a judge of Israel. But that was back in the very beginning. So now we have these 700 men from Benjamin. And so um, it says in verse 17, Now besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. So the men of Israel, verse 18, arose and they went up to the house of God. Now this is a good sign because after all, they haven't been consistent, but the Bible mentions that they did go up. They did go up to the, to the tabernacle in Bethel and they, they inquire of God and they said, which of us should go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? And probably through the Urim and Thummim, those two rocks that the high priest would have in his, in his ephod, they probably divine that by that way and and discern God's um, uh, choice by that. Uh, the Lord said, Judah first. Judah first. And notice, it's good that they did this. There's, there's a glimmer of hope now <laughs> that they would seek the Lord in this. Very encouraging. And um, we're going to see them inquiring of the Lord in verse 23 and then in, in verses 26 through 28. And um, it's interesting, though, that the Lord had Judah go up first. We've seen this before in the scripture. In the very beginning of Judges, you remember, after the death of Joshua, it says in, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 1, 
that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. And, and remember, Judah has always been the lawgiver. It's the one that uh, Jesus Christ ultimately would come through. It's the one who David would come through the line of Judah, and ultimately Jesus Christ. And so Judah was a leader. And so God uh, used uh, uh, Judah to go first into these battles, into these different things. And you can look at Genesis 49 and just see how Jacob prophesied over his sons, over Judah. Um, and ultimately it prophesies ultimately of Jesus Christ coming into the world through Mary. And... Um, Verse 19, it says, So the children of Israel, they rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And this is an interesting thing. It says, The men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. And um, Gibeah is, uh, again, just a, a little bit north of, of Jerusalem and about halfway between Jerusalem and, and Mizpah. And so... Verse 21, the children of Benjamin, they came out of Gabeah, and on that day they cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. I find that crazy, don't you? There's a, an army of at least 360,000 men going against 26,700 men. The odds are so against them. But, you know, sometimes when there's a lot of numbers, people get lazy. They're thinking, ah, oh, we're going to, the guys in the back are like, and by the time we get up there, it's going to be over with, Right? Maybe they were thinking that. I don't really know. But then again, those 700 men from Benjamin are coming out, drawing with their left hand and totally throwing everybody off. I'm sure they put those guys right in the front because they were not expecting that. And uh, certainly that probably didn't bode well for them. So the first time, the first day, they lose 22,000 men of the Israelites. And the people, that is the men of Israel, they encouraged themselves. And again, they formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. And I love this. The children of Israel, they do. They went up and they wept before the Lord. They're probably saying, how can this happen? These guys are clearly in sin. We're going to take retribution. We're going to do the right thing. Actually, it really wasn't the right thing, but they were angered and they wanted to do the right thing initially, but they weren't going to get their, what they wanted. So now they're just going to go all out against them. But the Lord said, and so they asked the Lord, shall I draw near to battle against the children of my brethren, Benjamin? And the Lord says, go up against him. The Lord never promised that there would be victory that next day, and in fact, there wasn't. So the children of Israel, verse 24, they approached the children of Benjamin on the second day, and Benjamin went out against them from Gabeah on the second day, and now they cut down 18,000 more of the children of Israel, and all these with the sword, and all these drew the sword. You know, perhaps the Lord was getting their attention. You know, now they lose... 22 and now 18,000. That's 40,000 men in two days they've lost. And they should have overwhelmed the enemy. But all throughout this time, they weren't really walking with the Lord. Except in this battle, there's some semblance of them trying to get back to doing the right thing. But, you know, there's so much stuff that they've been involved in. And God, for reasons we don't always know, allowed them to go through this humiliating defeat when it should have been a very quick operation. 
Then all the children of Israel, verse 26, that is, all the people, went up and came to the house of God, and they wept, and they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And, and I can imagine God's heart right now just really warming up, you know, loving these people, even though they've been doing such horrible things, and now when they really need something, now they're devoted. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever found yourself being that way? That when you really want something, boy, then your prayer life gets really serious. But up until then, you're just kind of like, eh. I know people like that. Remember 9-11? When 9-11 happened, I had people lined up outside my cube at Xerox, people who knew I was a Christian, wanting to know what the Bible had to say about what just happened. They knew something was up. But until then, they had no relationship with the Lord. They didn't even care to know. But now they're weeping. Now they want answers. Right? And thank God they were that way. I'm, I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying that usually when we're wounded, that's usually the time we start to squeal and we start to come to the Lord. And, you know, the Lord allows that. He allows that to get our attention. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord, and the Ark of the Covenant, it says, of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, you might want to underline this, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord says, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver it them into your hand. This Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, was the same Aaron, or the same person, back in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 25, where he thrust through that, that uh, uh man from Israel who brought in a, a woman from one of the Canaanite cities, uh, a woman that he shouldn't have been with, and he committed the lewdness right in front of Israel. This is while they were still in, in, the, in the desert before they came into the promised land. So this is the same man. So this has to be back in the beginning of the time of Judges, because if you put it chronologically after Samson, it, it doesn't make any sense, because this is the same guy. So this is um, a, a period of time close to the beginning of Judges when all of this that we're reading tonight happened. Does that make sense? Because you can just do the figure that out and it makes sense. So, but now notice now they go up to the Lord and he says, not only well, not only should you go up, but guess what? Here's the promise. You're not going to lose any more guys, or at least not very many, and I'm going to give you victory over them. And so they did. So then Israel, verse 29, set men in ambush all around Gibeah, and we're going to see a battle strategy here tonight that we're not going to go there tonight, but I would encourage you to write down in the margin of your Bible after this verse, Joshua chapter 8, verses 1 through 23. And basically what's going to happen, if you read that, you're going to find a very similar battle strategy that now the Israelites are figuring out. They're going, this worked one other time in history, not too long ago. A couple hundred years prior, maybe, this battle plan worked. And basically what it is is they were going to ambush the city. So uh, here's Gabeah. If you look up here at me, here's the city of Gabeah. The, the Israelites will come after uh, Gabeah, 
and would draw out and then turn around and run as they have done the last couple of days. And then the Benjamites would come after them. And unbeknownst to the Benjamites, there's going to be a whole other group of guys coming down and attacking the city. And they're going to kill everybody in it and set the place on fire. And when their smoke starts to ascend, then the guys out in the field who are running from the Benjamites are going to turn around and start chasing those guys. And they're going to see the fire from their city and realize this is not looking good. Right? They'll realize what happened. The same exact strategy happened, if you remember, when Israel, when they first came into the land, into the promised land. They attacked Jericho, remember? And the very next city was Ai. And they did the very same thing. God gave them that plan. And the young men in West Point and all these different military schools, this is a strategy they must understand. If you're going to go to war, you've got to know this kind of battle plan, an ambush. And here it is in the Bible. You know, there's really nothing new under the sun, is there? Notice how these men were thinking and learning from what happened in the past. Again, remember how I was talking about how Saul chopped up the oxen and sent it to the different men of Israel to get them to come to war? Where did he learn that from? He learned that from these guys. And where are these guys learning? These things, going back even further in their history at the Battle of Ai, they learned this idea. In Ecclesiastes, I love what Solomon said. He says, that which has been, that which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. And it's important that we learn from the past. And it's important that we learn and that we know the truth and that we share that truth with those around us that we love, especially our kids, our grandkids. Share with them the things that you've learned. Share with them the heartaches, the things that have broken your heart. Share them the failures of your life. Hopefully they won't repeat the same thing again. And if they're smart, and unfortunately they usually have to go through it themselves, and that's the bitterness of being a parent is to be telling your son or daughter, listen, I, I know what it's like being a teenager. I remember those days, and I remember how foolish I was, and the things that I did, and my parents said, Johnny, don't you do that, because you know what's going to happen to you. Oh, no, Mom, I'll do a lot better. <laughs> Thanks, though. See you around midnight. Uh, Mr. Kellogg, uh, your daughter's in jail, um, and she wants to be bailed out. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know anybody by that name. Bye. No, no. but people, unfortunately, we don't learn we don't learn from our mistakes, and it's important that we tell those things, our successes and our failures with our kids, with our grandkids, with everyone, really. Share them. May we, and, and, and there's a really ugly thing. There's a, a gentleman by the name of George Santayana who was a Spanish philosopher and a poet, and he said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. If we don't learn from our past, we are condemned to repeat it, and we see it happening every single day, don't we? And boy, it's frustrating being a human being. Can you imagine how frustrating it must be for God? I'm sure he's not frustrated because he sees all things. He, he, he can't learn anything. You and I are frustrated because we see the same thing happening over and over again within our own lives, within our own family members. And no matter what you do, it's like you, you pray and you tell them and you pray and you tell them and you watch them step in the same thing that you stepped in and you see them going through the same consequences and your heart is breaking. You're just like, if they would have only listened. And therein lies the human nature. 
Verse 30. And the children of Israel, they went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day, and they put themselves in battle array against Gabeah as at other times. And so you th- think of how cocky now the, the men of Benjamin are. They see the Israelites, there's 40,000 of them less than the day before. And they're thinking to themselves, ah, we'll just do the same thing. They're lining up just like they've done the last couple of days. We'll just do the same thing. Repeat. Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. (laughs) So the children of Benjamin, verse 31, they went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They began to strike down and kill some of the people, as at other times in the highways, one of which goes to Bethel and the other to Gabeah and in the field, about 30 men. So they got about 30 men of Israel. And I love the details in the scripture. You realize this is not just some allegory. Do you realize and and understand that you're reading history? Some people talk about the Bible as if it's just a bunch of stories, like Jonah and the whale, or whatever that fish was. We don't know if it's a whale. The Bible doesn't say it was a whale. It's a large fish of some kind. could have been a whale. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, David and Goliath, all of these stories, we, we, you know, in Sunday school, they teach them, not here, but in some schools and some churches, they teach them, oh, these are just cute little stories to learn something by. No, this is real history, folks. Remember that. It's history. It's history. And why is it there? That we might be encouraged, that we might grow, that we might learn, Right? So the children of Benjamin, verse 31, they went out against the people and were drawn away. Oh, I read that verse. About 30 men of Israel they they killed. In verse 32 it says, And the children of Benjamin said, They are defeated before us as at the first. So they're thinking to themselves, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. They're just thinking, just do the same thing over and over again. And the children of Benjamin said, They are defeated before us as at the first. But the children of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highway. So all the men of Israel rose from their place. They put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. And then Israel's men in ambush, they burst forth from their position in the plain of of Geba. And the 10,000 select men from all Israel came against Gibeah, and the battle was fierce, but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was come upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites, all those that drew the sword. All those that drew the sword. And so when you do the math of this, I I love this about the Bible and some of the numbers. They started off with 26,700. They've now been reduced by that number, 25,100, which leaves about 1,600, maybe 900 of them left. An entire tribe almost wiped out. These are men. You need men for children, right? You also need ladies too, but if there's no men, guess what? The tribe is not going to go on. It's going to end abruptly. So... So the children of Israel, or children of Benjamin, excuse me, verse 36, saw that they were, they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied. So right now, uh, verse 36 on below is going to describe all the things that happened to get to that point where they had defeated them by 25,100. So we're going to see a tally here in just a moment. So the children of Israel, I keep saying that, the children of Benjamin, they saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the, grunt, the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed against Gibeah. So here's the story of what happened. The men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. 
Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city. So that was the same thing we see in Joshua chapter 8. Same kind of battle plan. Draw out the inhabitants of the city, send an ambush behind the city, come in, kill everybody, burn the city. As the smoke is going up, now the guys turn around and now these men are sandwiched in between. It's a really awful place to be if you are an enemy and that is happening to you. Verse 39, whereupon the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, for they said, surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them. And can you imagine their horror as the whole city was going up in smoke to heaven? And I wonder if some of them are thinking, oh, if we had just read the book of Joshua. <laughs> Who knows if it was in written form at this time. You know, maybe it wasn't. But certainly the history was there. Certainly they knew about it. And boy, that tactic is really useful at times, especially when your enemy has fallen asleep. They still use it today. It's a great battle plan if you can catch your enemy off guard. And when the men, verse 41... When the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, and you can imagine why, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them, and whoever came out of the cities, they destroyed in their midst. And so they surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, easily trampled, trampled them down as far as the front of Gabeah toward the east. And, and notice, here, here is the, 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 the tally, if you will, to get to that 25,100 that were slain of, of Benjamin. It says, 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All of these were men of valor. Verse 45, then they turned and they fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, which is a very uh, great place. It's like a fortress area. And if you're hiding from your enemy, it's a great place to do it. And so it's sort of like the rock city of Petra, perhaps, something that seems impregnable, someplace where you could go like David did when he fled from Saul. He went to, you know, En Gedi in the place where there's a lot of rocks, very rocky, very treacherous area. So they cut down, they, uh, some turned toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon, and they cut down 5,000 of them on the highways. Then they pursued them re relentlessly up to Giddim and killed 2,000 of them. So all the, who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000, really 25,100 men who drew the sword, and all these were men of valor. All these were men of valor. And you think about all of these men, think about how many thousands, tens of thousands, on both sides now, that have died because of the rebellion of the tribe of Benjamin. They could have just given up the men who did this awful, wicked deed, but they were proud in their heart. And whether it's a person or a nation, pride, there's never any good fruit that comes out of a life that is bent on pride. A life that is proud, that is bent on, uh, um, on, on prideful things is always a life that is up for trouble and heartache. It's better for us to humble ourselves. Didn't Jesus say, I will humble those who exalt themselves and I will exalt those who... I'll humble those who are exalted and exalt those who are humble. The way up is down. For us to show strength is not meeting might with might, but rather humbling ourselves. It's totally unworldly. It's totally something the world doesn't expect. They don't expect it. And how beautiful it is when you see 
the humility of a person against great odds and has a great reason to, to retaliate in some manner and to see them back down. I'll never forget seeing uh, a, a, a man who, whose daughter was killed by a drunk driver. He was drunk out of his mind, goes out of control, kills his daughter in a car. And then for this man to see this man in court and the man, you know, they're sifting this father down, making sure he doesn't have any weapons on him because you understand that a father killed his daughter. You can imagine the anguish and the pain that that must be. And then for the man to go up to the man who killed his daughter and to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. I've been praying for you. That is powerful. To humble yourself like that, boy, the fruit of that. <laughs> For everyone in that courtroom, anyone who saw it on TV, is affected in a huge way because every man is touched by that man's humility and what God had done in his life. So much better, isn't it, than if the man would have gotten his way and pulled out a gun and did the John Wayne thing, did the Charles Bronson thing, did the Clint Eastwood thing. No, he humbled himself. He broke his own heart. And he prayed for the guy and forgave him. Notice verse 47. But 600 men turned and they fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. And they stayed at the rock for Ramon for about four months. So these are the only, four, uh, these are the only men that are alive. These 600 men of the tribe of Benjamin. Everyone else has been wiped out. Of the, of the men. And the women. And the men of Israel, verse 48, turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, man and beast, and all were found. They also set fire to all their cities they came to. But these 600 men are left. So verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath in Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. As a result of what they've done, we are not going to give our, our, um, our, any of our daughters to that tribe. Kind of a, it seems noble, doesn't it? But a rash vow they made. A rash vow. They painted themselves into a corner. They didn't even know it, but they had already painted themselves into a corner. What did Jesus say about oaths? They didn't have to make an oath like that. God did not make them make an oath like that. But usually we make an oath when we're desperate, when we're angry. We make, a vote, we make an oath. And Jesus said, again, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, don't swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, let your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Your word is your bond. You don't need to make a promise. If you say you're going to do it, you're going to do it. You don't need to make an oath. It's better for you not to make an oath. But these Benjamites, they made an oath, and boy, they were going to stick to it no matter what. And we're going to see how foolish that is and how it's going to create quite a pickle for the, for the people of Benjamin. Verse 2, it says, And the people came to the house of the Lord, and they remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices, and they wept bitterly, and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel, <laughs> that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? So they're realizing 
because of all the bloodshed, because of their stubbornness, now there's barely a tribe remaining. And they say to the Lord, notice, why has this come to pass? And I almost wonder if, if the Lord would just break through the clouds and go, because of your stubbornness, because of your pig-headedness, because of your pride, Benjamin. Why has it become upon you? It's your fault. He could have been justified in saying so, because had they given up those men, none of this would have happened. But no, we're proud. We're Benjamin. So it was, verse 4, on the next morning that the people rose early and they built an altar there. This sounds so good. And they, built, they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord? For they had made a great oath. Here we go again, another oath. Do you see? They're just full of oaths. Making oaths. Boy, these guys don't come up, man. Anybody who anybody doesn't come up, we're going to kill them. You know, and people make these oaths when they're angry, when they're frustrated. Have you made an oath when you're angry, frustrated, desperate? Many of us have. So the children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord? For they had made a great oath, a great oath, not just a regular oath, a great oath, concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. I mean, really? Is there not enough bloodshed? Has, has not enough blood on the ground as a result of all of the things that have happened so far? Now they're going to make another oath, a great oath at that. I mean, come on, guys. Verse 6, and the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin, their brother. So they had some heart in them. <laughs> they grieved for their brother Benjamin. And they said, one tribe is cut off from Israel today. And they were the reason. What shall we do for wives for those who remain, seeing that we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives? So the, all of Israel made this oath. We're not going to give our, our, our daughters to you know, the, these, these men that are left. So we, and we made an oath, too, a great oath. Now we're in a great pickle. God, why have you done this? It's because of you, Benjamin. It's all on you. <laughs> it was. It was all on them. And they said, What one is there from the tribe of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to the Lord? In fact, no one had come to the camp from Jabeth-Gilead to the assembly. So these are the folks on the other side of the, of the River Jordan, right? These are from the tribe of uh, Gad and Manasseh, somewhere in that area. Right on the border of that is Jabesh-Gilead. These men didn't come up to help them. And so, this is the thing that you shall do, they said. You shall utterly destroy every male. Go to Jabesh-Gilead, kill every male and every woman who has not known a man intimately. And so they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins. They killed everybody else, but they found 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately. And so they found the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead. Oh, I read that, didn't I? Um, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, these 400 young ladies, which is in the land of Canaan. And then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimon. So now you've got these 400 ladies, young ladies, who are virgins. And now they call to the guys down at the rock. And they say, hey, you know, you guys need to... Um, we almost wiped you out, but guess what? We got some ladies for you. You can take them in as, as your wives. It's a present 
So Benjamin came back at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, and yet they had not found enough for them. So if there's 600 men and there's only 400 ladies, there's 200 men who don't have wives. <laughs> and this is kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? And they painted themselves into the corner. Do you see what they've done? Because of their oaths, because of their rashness, because of their pride, they got themselves into the problem to begin with. And now because of the vows, they've, they've really made things exponentially worse for themselves. And so, verse 15, And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribe of Israel. Really? Was it the Lord? He allowed it. He certainly did. It was his permissive will. Was it his perfect will? I doubt it. His perfect will probably would have been for them to give up the men of Gibeah when they committed this heinous crime. But no. So is it the Lord's fault? I don't think it's the Lord's fault at all. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for the wives for those who remain, since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin. Now they have a heart. They want to they help out their brother, Benjamin. And he said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the children of Israel have sworn an oath. We can't give them our daughters, because we've sworn an oath saying, Cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. Then they said, In fact, there is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh. Now Shiloh is north of them in the land of Ephraim, in the, in the tribal border of Ephraim, just north of them. So they hatch a plan. Notice the plan. They said, In fact, there is a yearly feast, and it's probably the Feast of Tabernacles which is north of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up to, from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. Therefore they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, Go lie in wait in the vineyards and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then come out of the vineyards, every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh. Then go to the land of Benjamin. It's called catch a wife game. Abduct a spouse. Kidnap a bride. <laughs> How crazy. Isn't that nuts? And this is how they're thinking they can get around this loophole. We can't give our daughters to Benjamin, but we can, we can have the men of Benjamin, these, these 200 guys who don't have wives, have them go up to Ephraim, up to Shiloh, and when the girls come out and dance, abduct those girls and take them back to Benjamin. And it shall be, verse 22, that when their fathers and their brothers come to us and complain, we will say to them, be kind to them for our sakes. Because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war, for it is not as though you had given them to, given women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath, of your oath, because they all made an oath, including the tribe of Ephraim. They weren't to give their wives to these men of Benjamin, but they didn't give the wives to them. They stole them. So now they think, well, I'm free from the oath because I stole them. I pinched it. I pinched them. I abducted. I've kidnapped the girls. So I've gotten away with my, from my vow. Do you think the Lord kind of sees the hypocrisy of that? I mean, thank God they did that. Otherwise, the tribe would be wiped out. Saul might not have been born. Which probably wouldn't have been a bad thing. <laughs> but you get the point. 
And the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught. I love that. It's just, it just sounds so like Barney, and it sounds like the Flintstones. Remember when they, they you know, they, they, Barney Rubble would walk a little club, you know, and he would, you know, bang his wife over the head and drag her by the hair. Remember that? That, that, that cartoon really wouldn't fly in today's vernacular, would it? Um, but it's just so um, odd. They, they caught a wife. What'd you do today? Well, I caught my bride. Does she like you? I don't know. Don't care. Well, happy marriage. Happy life. Happy wife. <laughs> so, they went and they returned to their inheritance with their new caught bride. And they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. And so the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And then finally, the book of Judges ends with the, with the common refrain that we've been seeing throughout the book, and that is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What was right in his own eyes. And that's the end of the book of Judges. Next week, when we get into Ruth, we're going to see Ruth was living around this time period of the Judges but we see something different in her. And it's interesting because Ruth, this Moabitess, this Gentile woman, is actually going to be David's great-grandmother. We're going to see her in the lineage of Matthew. We're going to see this Gentile woman actually being in the line of Judah, who would ultimately give birth to King David, and ultimately, through that line, Jesus Christ, a Gentile woman. It's almost like God's got a sense of humor. He's not, he's not bound by blood of people. He sees the faith of, of Ruth, this Moabitess. And so I'm looking forward to getting into that uh, next week. But um, there's a lot to learn here from the book of Judges, though. You know, as you go and you read through it again, if, if you dare to do that anytime soon. There's so many things. It wasn't a period of history that Israel's proud of. It's a, a difficult time, a difficult time. And would the God that we learned, you know, the children of Israel, even today, hopefully they'll learn from these things. And hopefully all of us who read these things will learn from those lessons. We'll learn from people like Gideon, who was fearful. We'll learn from people like Samson, who was governed more by his eyes than really a man of faith. And in these two gentlemen, we see a lot in our history. We see a lot to learn from. We have a lot of experience to glean from if we'll listen and if we'll let the Spirit of God speak to our hearts. So really, that's what the book of Judges is about. It's, it's, a, it's a book of failure, really. But it's not written here that it would just rub our noses in it. It's there so that we can see what life is like in rebellion. And I love the fact that God doesn't sanitize the Bible. He tells it like it is. That's why passages like last week and the beginning of tonight were very difficult to hear. But God makes sure that we understand this is really what a life is like, that apart from me, this is what you're capable of doing. This is what can happen. And I don't think God wants that for any of us, do you? He wants us to learn. He wants us to be set free. 
So let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for what we've learned in the book of Judges. Lord, so many lessons, so much history there, Lord, that unfortunately is repeated later on as we look in the book of Samuel after we get through Ruth. Lord, we see so much history that was uh, even from the past in the book of Judges that was, that was gleaned from. And even in the future of the book of Judges, there's going to be people doing similar things. God, help us to learn. Lord, help us to rightly divide your word and help us to be humble enough to surrender our lives to you. And Lord, to read the word of God with not just it being about somebody else. Help us to read it and wound us first. For good or ill, it's always for good, actually, Lord, if it's from you. The conviction, Lord, the encouragement, the love, the, the good examples, the bad examples, Lord, help us to learn from these things. That we could be a city set on a hill. We could be those ambassadors, those people who others can look at and say, I want to, what is it about your life? What is it about you that's so different from everybody else? I want what you have. Lord, help us to be willing to share and open our mouth and tell them the truth, the good news, Lord, the things that you've done. How we thank you for that, Lord, and how we thank you for showing us the ugly things. But Lord, there's so much more beautiful things in your word, Lord. They're like diamonds of, and gold little nuggets that we get to read and figure out and find out as we go. Thank you for that, Lord. Please encourage our hearts tonight and get us home safely and bless our day tomorrow. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.